welcome to episode four of the Pacific Century. This is John Yu. I'm a professor of law at the University of California at Berkeley, and most importantly, a visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. And I'm joined here with my co-host, Misha Oslin. Misha, say hello. Introduce yourself yet again to our... Hello, Misha. (laughs) (laughs) And as you know, this is a podcast sponsored by the Hoover Institution to focus on matters involving China, but also the broader Pacific region. Good morning, John. From uh, Washington, that is at the height of cherry blossoms season. The only time that Washington is an appealing city (laughs) is when the cherry blossoms are out for one week a year. And apropos of the subject of the podcast, the cherry blossom trees are, how did they get to Washington? They were a gift from the Japanese government back at the turn of the century. But John, what most people don't know is that the cherry blossom trees you see today are the second iteration of cherry oh, blossom I didn't know trees. That. The first batch the of Teddy cherry Roosevelt, blossom trees. Did Teddy Roosevelt like trample the first generation no, no, down with his cavalry when he's practicing? You, you would have thought that perhaps. <laughs> but but what happened was they actually they were infested with some sort of parasite that right. when they came here they, they all had to be destroyed. Now Really? We th- we don't think much of it today, but transshipping across the Pacific Ocean, these very fragile seeds and roots and trees back at the start of the 20th century was actually an extraordinary achievement, and, and it yeah. was incredibly expensive as this symbol of uh, of friendship between Japan and the United States. And so they had to be all destroyed, and, they, oh. and the Washingtonians thought, well, we'll never get these trees. Hmm. And then the Japanese sent another batch, and uh, they've sent – Several batches. So when you go down to the tidal basin, what you see are actually different types of trees from different <laughs> periods. But you can go and look for the old, original Japanese trees uh, that have a that they have a lifespan. So they're starting to die off, <laughs> and there's not that many left. But again, it's the one time of year that uh, Washingtonians uh, actually, I think, like to be in the city. So we're <laughs> we're happy to do a podcast today. But John, before we start, because there's a lot of news in Asia, in the Pacific. I thought we'd go to the mailbag again. Oh, no. Did, Did your mom write another letter? Mom wrote another letter. Oh, it was my a gosh. short one, though, this time. That's not like your mom. It's, it would, <laughs> no, no, it, it, it's not. She wrote, she wrote a short letter, uh, and she included you this time. Oh, it said, mom. It said, Dear Misha and John, I love listening to you, but I don't have all day. <laughs> Can you please keep the podcast to less than an hour and a half? Love, Misha's mom. Uh, so the answer, mom, is yes. We we do realize we went a little long last time, but we had a great time interviewing Neil Ferguson, our colleague, uh, and then talking about a lot of issues. But we are going to try to, uh, gentle listener, respect your time. We're going to try to go for about forty five minutes to to cover a lot of a lot of different news. So, John, what's what's first on the docket today? Well, Misha, as you said, there's been a lot going on. Even though our last podcast just a week ago. I think most listeners probably want to know what you think and I think about China's military aggressiveness, uh, both towards Japan and Taiwan. So with Japan, you might have uh, read Japan had – I'm sorry, with uh, China, Japan uh, relations, China just sent a small little fleet of aircraft 
and, sh- and naval vessels into something called the Miyako Strait. So, Misha, first explain what the Miyako Strait is and why it's so strategically significant. So this is this is uh, really important. It is a, uh, a strategically important gap between uh, the Miyako Island and uh, Okinawa. Um, if if you're thinking about it on a map and you're looking at a map right now, uh, it's really sort of in between um, Taiwan and Okinawa. Um, and there are some islands. There's the Senkaku Islands that are in between them, and some other large islands. But this is really it's basically a doorway, a portal from the East China Sea into the Western Pacific Ocean. So for the Chinese Navy in particular, but, but the military as a whole, one thing you got to do, I think, which would be really helpful, so for every reader who has a map, every listener who has a map in front of mm-hmm. them, take your map and rotate it 45 degrees to the left. So what is north is now west, and what is east is now north. And when you do that you see strategically the region, the Indo-Pacific, the way the Chinese do. Yeah, I was going to say, look at it from the Chinese perspective. Look at it from the Chinese perspective. You're surrounded. And w- <laughs> w- you are surrounded, and you're, you're surrounded by this barrier of islands yes. that are the Ryukyu Island chain stretching down from, uh, from Kyushu in Japan, basically all the way to Taiwan. And then you're also surrounded uh, from Taiwan down to the Philippines. And so you, you look at that map and, and you see a very different view of, of Asia and, and how the Chinese feel that from both the East China Sea and the South China Sea, as well as, of course, the, the Sea of Japan, um, they are blocked from access to the Western Pacific. They have to go through the Philippine Sea, get into the Western Pacific, and, and, the, and what we call the global commons, right? So for decades now, this has been a goal of the Chinese, has been to have the ability to control and dominate what they call the two island chains. The first island chain, which is that that string of islands going down. So it's uh, Japan, Okinawa, Taiwan, exactly. Philippines. No, no, exactly. Yeah. Well, then Philippines looping, is more the second. Right. Well, no, no. Philippines is part of the first, and it and it loops uh, for the whole South China Sea. What a lot of listeners know is the cow's tongue or the nine dash line. Yeah. The second line goes much farther out. It actually reaches out to Guam, yeah, and that's to the Guam. Western Pacific, right? So if you look at it from the Chinese perspective, and this is what American planners have talked about. I remember reading uh, U.S. military and diplomatic documents from the time that China fell to the communists. And at that time already our planners were saying we have to uh, – and this is sort of part of why – uh, Korea was left out of the list of – if you remember, yep. uh, there were these arguments that Dean Acheson gave this famous speech uh, that laid out American security interests under the early Truman administration in Asia. And he listed this first island chain and he said we have to make sure we control this. And there's still arguments today if he, he kind of unintentionally left Korea off the list. But the Soviets and North Korea were very interested in the fact that Korea was not mentioned. But if you have Korea, Japan, and that first island chain, you really can contain Chinese sea power. That's right. And uh, it seems like it's an American strategic interest to keep doing, if not uh, redouble our efforts. That's right. So what, we, what, what we've done, of course, has been building up uh, our, our alliance with Japan. Japan and we have been working with some Southeast Asian nations. And the Chinese have consistently been building up their ability, particularly uh, through the naval end, but the air end now, to try to penetrate through that chain and be able to reach into the Western Pacific and have 
freedom of action. So what they did, to go back to the news that we're yeah. actually talking about, what they did over this week was send a uh, an air flotilla, they sent uh, two bombers and an electronic warfare plane through this Miyako Strait. And so a listener can quickly type in Miyako Strait and see where it is and see that it's really pretty much the largest gap into the Western Pacific. But this is this was clearly a signal uh, to Japan about how far the Chinese can fly and that they can do a coordinated uh, a coordinated operation, and they send uh, naval vessels as well, very regularly, mm. out into the Western Pacific, trying to reach all the way to Guam. And of course, uh, their goal would be to basically cut these islands off from from Japan, uh, use them as as launching pads for um, either for for planes or for the ability to uh, to sortie through through the region. Now, of course, Okinawa is very heavily defended. We have uh, our Marines Marine are there. there. We have Kadena Air Base there. So it's they understand that that this is a uh, a strategic necessity to be able to show that they can. And conversely, uh, can do that. if there were a military crisis with China, one of the first things we would want to do is shut down any Chinese traffic through there. Absolutely. Right. Well, what we you want, want to do is, is what we did to the Soviets in the Cold War. If you look at the Sea of Japan, the Sea of Ohotsk area, we bottled the Soviets up uh, in, in the Pacific so that, um, you know, where, where the Soviets are more of a, of, a, of a sea power, the Russians are a sea power than they are a land power, I mean, because they want to get out into the Pacific. So uh, we want to bottle the Chinese up. And so their doctrine and their, their force structure and uh, their training has all been to be able to sortie through these areas where they want, which is why you see so much activity in both the South and, and East China Seas. And, John, I think what's particularly uh, striking about what happened in the Miyako Strait on, on April 1st is that it was paralleled the same day or the day before by a similar incursion into Taiwanese airspace, which was two uh, advanced Chinese fighters, the J-11s, uh, which are which are uh, they're part of their air superiority fighter uh, component, uh, crossed what is called the median line between yes. Taiwan and the Chinese mainland, which both sides basically say is the border. Now, Chinese have crossed into this before, uh, but usually it's been an accident, more or less. They come right back out. These mm-hmm. planes deliberately went over the line for 10 minutes or more, uh, they were clearly sending a message to Taiwan. Taiwan scrambled jets to intercept them. We don't know if they actually saw each other. Uh, but this was the first time in about two decades that the Chinese have really sort of have, have blatantly gone over the line and, and shown that, that we're going to do this. Now, last May, they sent bombers and fighters basically to circle the entire island mm-hmm. to show that, you know, wherever we want to attack you from, we're able to do that. Uh, and so this is this is a continuing uh uh, basically a show by the Chinese that whether it's vis-a-vis Japan, whether it's vis-a-vis Taiwan, whether it's vis-a-vis the Southeast Asian nations, that they are able to uh, to project power. You know, again, we, we are getting used to the idea of a China that can regularly and I would say credibly project power. Um, we, we've watched this build up and for, you know, the first decade of the build up, we talked about what's going to happen on the day when they can actually send their navy around the world. Well, we're, we're there now. What's going to happen on the day when they can do combined joint operations, air and, air and sea and even land? That's what they're aiming at, and that's what we're seeing as they both get the experience of doing this, but, but I think very importantly they're sending messages to us and to these other nations that we are able to do this and we're going to continue to do this. Now, the danger, and then I think we can um, uh, shift in, in what we're talking about, but the danger, uh, of course, is that, 
the Taiwanese can't take this lying down. And in fact, President Tsai Ing-wen made a very strong statement saying that she will order forcible or forceful expulsion of Chinese planes that cross the median line again. So she stuck her, her chin out, and she has to do it. The Chinese are forcing her into this, because if she doesn't respond, she's going to look ineffective and, and, and weak and only embolden them. But now the Taiwanese have to figure out, what, what does that mean, forceful expulsion? Uh, if you just sit there and sort of watch them, uh, I wrote about this at National Review today on the corner, if you, mm-hmm. if you read National Review and read the corner. Uh, if they just sort of sit there and watch them and the Chinese sort of fly around until they decide to leave, that's not forceful expulsion. So she's going to be seen as uh, as ineffective. So this is this is throwing some sparks on the Taiwan Strait tinderbox. And it, it, it really, as usual in this case, it's up to the Chinese. Are they going to force the issue? Uh, and when you're flying at 600 miles an hour, 700 miles an hour, thousands, tens of thousands of feet up in the air, um, accidents can happen really quickly. Miscalculation can happen quickly, as happened between the U.S. and China back in April of 2001, when mm-hmm. two planes collided. Uh, the Chinese collided into our plane. The fighter pilot was killed. Our electronic uh, surveillance plane had to make an emergency landing on Hainan Island. Uh, the crew was held for uh, a while and then released. Between China and, and Taiwan, this could rapidly spiral out of control and escalate. So this is this is a dangerous moment. Two points about uh, to, I think to add to uh, this, your analysis, it seems spot on to me. Uh, one is, so if you're the Chinese, you're going to say, well, you Americans, you're constantly taking small fleets of ships uh, through the Taiwan Strait too. You know, the United States just sent a, a naval vessel, two naval vessels. I think one was a Coast Guard a ship and a U.S. naval vessel. And then they say, and you're constantly uh, taking ships through all these spaces we claim are ours in the South China Sea is coming right up up to the, what we consider the border of these artificial islands we've built. Why don't we get to do the same thing? Um, I think there's an important difference. Uh, you know, when the United States Navy is doing it, it's actually doing it to uh, make clear that our ships have the right to go, what we usually say is anywhere international law permits. And so we're trying to make clear that there's free passage for everybody through these spaces and that China can't close off the entire South China Seas by building these fake islands in the middle of nowhere and then starting to claim territory that extends outwards. Uh, Same with the Taiwanese Strait. We do it to make clear that China doesn't actually own the Taiwanese Strait. Whereas I think, Misha, what you say is China is doing something different. They are – and I think people would want to know, what what are the – why are all these incursions so important? You know, it's just one or two planes. Why not just let them fly through and not worry about it? Um, what's China doing when it sends these? I think it's not to, to defend the right of free air and sea navigation. They're doing it, as you said, to send a message. They are um, testing to see if there would be a response. And as you referred to, there was constantly a similar dynamic between the U.S. and the USSR during the Cold War up up north near Alaska, there would be flights of American and Russian surveillance planes right outside the border of each country. And I think uh, for that reason, it's a it's sort of like a show of force or a small testing of the other side. But Misha, let me ask you, what can the United States and Taiwan or the United States and Japan do uh, in response? I mean, do they just have to sit there and let the Chinese flex their muscles, uh, scare smaller countries in the region? Um, basically push China – I'm sorry, push Japan and Taiwan around? Is that what we're looking yeah, at? Yeah, look, I think uh, in addition to what you were um, 
mentioning about the, the, the signaling and, and something that I had mentioned. I think it is, it is very important to, to understand these are also um, uh, these are operational uh, activities for the Chinese. They're learning how to do this, right? They're yeah. learning uh, how far they can go and, and um, how well they can coordinate and communicate and, and the like. And so I think on the U.S.-Japan side, we uh, we do what we do. The, 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 Je- the Japanese protect their own airspace. They have a very good air force, uh, and they have an air force that is just standing up its first uh, uh, F-35 squadron um, as they get more and more of the F-35s. Uh, they scramble each time. Um, I, I'm sure that we share the intelligence. We have a, we actually have a, a, a co-located, meaning the, the, the American and the Japanese air defense uh, officers sit together um, so we have we have very good communication uh, with with our ally, and I think w- what we do is continue to do what we do. First of all, we're going to sell them the F-35, uh, which is our top of the line air superiority fighter, too. Right? Well, right. I mean, the the F-22 is really the the top line. Of course, we don't produce it anymore, yeah. and we chose not <laughs> to sell it to Japan. So the F-35 is is, All that's left. Uh, is is what's left, um, and uh, the it's Japanese still superior to the Chinese. The Chinese fighter is not. A full top of the line stealth fighter, the way they are. Well, they're building a J twenty, starting what may be a, a carrier launched one, the J thirty one. So they are they are trying to get stealth fighters. I mean, it's a whole different story. The F thirty five is actually not designed as an air superiority fighter, and it, and it was meant to be. It was designed to be yeah, uh, the equivalent strike. of the F right. They had multi strike the F sixteen, whereas the F twenty two would be the air superiority yeah. fighter replacing the F. 15. So, you know, we have to mix things up a little bit more. So do the Japanese. They have F-16s. They call them F-2s. Um, they they have F-15s, and they're going to have f thirty five. So they do what they do, and they're, they're going to continue to do it, and that's exactly right. Uh, there are arguments that the Taiwanese and the Japanese shouldn't scramble fighters every time because uh, it, it, it stresses their force too much. I think that's wrong. I think they need to scramble it every single time. The Chinese cannot think that they're going to get away w- with this or that there's not a response uh, and by the way, in the, the the better and faster that you respond, the Chinese also see that. So yeah, they may understand how you respond, but they see that you do respond. I think that's very important. Same thing with the Taiwanese. But the Taiwanese are on their own, right? It's not an alliance with Taiwan that we have, um, and so they they do scramble. Um, what what throws um, a wrench into the to the to the to the mix here, and and I think it's also part of why the Chinese uh, did this uh, these increased overflights. That the Trump administration has been far more supportive of giving Taiwan the type of um, the type of uh, weaponry that it needs. Um, there was a hesitation on the Obama administration, hesitation on the Bush administration part at times, um, certainly for everything that the Taiwanese wanted, and particularly the, the administration has indicated that it is, it is favorably inclined towards selling Taiwan advanced F-16V mm-hmm. fighters. Now, the Taiwanese have been asking for these for, for over a decade now. And uh, prior administrations have allowed upgrades of older F-16s, but it really probably doesn't do the job. They need newer models that have better avionics built in and everything like that. And, and the Chinese don't want to see that. In fact, the Chinese have, have said that it's a, it's a red line. That, you know, with the Chinese, everything that we do with Taiwan's a red line, any type of support that we do. We don't want to, we don't want to go down that road. Um, and, you know, it might be better to sell them the F-35s. But certainly what we can do is sell them the F-16Vs. Uh, and sell it to them quickly and for two reasons. One, it gives the Taiwanese a capability that they need. And two, it sends a message to the Chinese. We're not walking back on Taiwan. Um, you know, the, the, the six assurances that we gave, the understandings that we would help Taiwan to maintain its ability to defend itself are still there. Now, that balance has shifted dramatically in the past decade. The Chinese really 
there's a lot of studies that that indicate that the Taiwanese would have a hard time uh, defending against a full Chinese assault. Oh, yeah. You can flip that the other way, though, and, and look at how hard it is actually to invade Taiwan, uh, and the Chinese understand that. So the stalemate continues, but we have to make sure that that stalemate retains as much as possible a balance uh, whereby the Taiwanese can defend themselves. So that that is what we should do. The, the Chinese don't like it, uh, but that's no reason – for us not to do it, and no, some would argue, a better reason a, to do it. It's right, it's a reason. <laughs> it is a reason to do it. So, Jeez, if you're a strategist, you'd want to you'd want to make Taiwan. You just call forward operating base Taipei and fill the thing with <laughs> Abram tanks, Patriot missiles, and maybe an aircraft carrier too. You know, the unsinkable <laughs> aircraft carrier. Exactly. It's Taiwan un- and it's Japan. Like Great Britain. Japan is kind of like Great Britain, right? Exactly. The unsinkable aircraft carrier. Exactly. <laughs> so we'll wait and see what happens. I think for uh, for listeners, uh, uh, whether in government or out, uh, it's really trying uh, – paying attention over the next couple of weeks uh, and, and so to see if China tests this new resolve on the part of, on the part of uh, Tsai Ing-wen. I mean that's really important and, and as always – as a democracy in Taiwan, there's elections coming. Have you, how yeah. often have you been to Taiwan? Have you been? Yeah, I've been a, a number of times. It's a yeah, phenomenal too. place. What do you think? I love Taiwan. Because I bet most Americans have not been to Taiwan and you know, remember it as an you know, important symbol in the Cold War. But what Taiwan Taiwan is uh, – this is not the, the most unique insight. Great but food. But I think it's very important. Great food. Great food, great food, food. for John. So the, the, my importance is to find places in the world like Philadelphia – for some reason, Taipei reminds me of Philadelphia because there are these things, these night markets you can go, and there's food around the clock, right? All kinds of food. Now, they, Wawa has not made it to Taipei yet, but it's like Wawa because you can go in at any hour of the day and basically have anything you want to eat made for you right there on the spot. Best vegetarian <laughs> restaurant I've ever been to in Taipei, King really? Join Restaurant. Really? It was, it, the, the menu was endless, endless. Was so like, get this. Like pages. Here's this interesting thing about Taipei. Because we got to talk about culture. I'm sick about talking about bombing the Chinese. I think about that too much. <laughs> was, so <clears throat> if you go to a really fine Chinese restaurant in America, you know, with a real chef and everything, not just like a shorter cook, and you ask them, where did you learn to cook? Right? They'll say Taipei. Yeah. And so when I was in Taipei, I told – I went to a nice place and I said, you know, everyone, all these guys in America say that they learned to cook in Taipei. And I said, why is that? And he goes – it was really funny. He goes – where do you think all the chefs went when China fell to the communists? hundred percent. They all went to Taipei. So the high, the concentration of the highest knowledge of Chinese cooking in 1950 all fled to one city in the world. It's completely true. <laughs> it's everyone says that, and and yeah. you do a banquet in, in Taipei, and then you do a banquet in Beijing. There's there's no. Look, Beijing's caught up. Don't get me wrong; they got a lot of money now, and they've caught up. But absolutely, the you know Chinese culture was preserved on Taiwan when Mao was ravaging the mainland for decades, right? Through yeah, the those, Great Leap Forward and the Cultural Revolution, that the Taiwanese were were preserving it. So you asked, you know, what, what do we think about Taiwan? And it's interesting because for a long time, Taiwan had sort of dropped out of our out of our discussions, yeah. partly because yeah. of the rapprochement across the strait between Beijing and Taipei. But it's come back. It's not just because Tsai Ing-wen is, is a, a DPP, meaning Democratic Progressive Party leader, which has always, always been a little bit more um, uh, inclined towards independence. It's, it's because Beijing has, has steadily continued to try to shrink Taiwan's international space. The most important thing about Taiwan, bar none, is that it is a Chinese democracy. Yeah. It is a cynic democracy. I don't mean CYNIC. I mean 
S-I-N-I-C. Mm -hmm. It is a Chinese democracy which by its very existence refutes the arguments of the Chinese Communist Party that you can't have democracy in, in, a, in Chinese civilization. You need some sort of quasi-Confucian, quasi-legalist order of, of control that is hierarchical and, and – and Taiwan is a thriving democracy, and it, it, it is, and it should and be has, a fact, beacon and symbol. In fact, has done better once they converted to full democracy. I mean, they did pretty good under Absolutely. the KMT, Absolutely true. but once they became full democracy, they really have thrived. I, agree, I quite agree. and Japan and Korea too. I think, of I course. Mean, I, I no, so agree. the idea that you can, you you are Confucian or you're Asian, you can't be a democracy. Obviously, we've we've. We know we they, they have yeah. proven that not to be the case, but Taiwan in particular, because the argument was always, well, there's something about you know yeah. China, and and you, and you can't have China's never had a democracy. Well, yeah. China They're does have too a democracy. Different. That's yeah. exactly right. Oh, one last. Now we don't yeah. want to make this a uh, no a Taipei Travel Bureau ad. Although I hope they'll take a listen and become okay. Wait, John, there's something I do have to say. Wait, I do have to say <laughs> one what? thing. <laughs> but, no, I want to say one more thing about how nice Taipei. Yeah. The other thing worth visiting there is if you are a fan of Chinese art, going to the what's called the National Palace Museum is one of the great cultural experiences to, t to take advantage of in your lifetime because. As you're saying, not just did the chefs come, but the food, they brought the recipes. They also brought the entire Imperial Museum with them. So Chiang Kai-shek, I think, uh, transported pretty much all the best pieces of art from the from Beijing, from the National Palace Museum, which actually still ex exists in Beijing, but apparently is mostly empty because I think they still have all the spaces reserved in the museum for the return of the art. So, <clears throat> excuse me, if you go to... Taipei, <clears throat> excuse me, you go to the National Palace Museum. The worst piece of art in that museum that would be on display would be the finest piece of Chinese art in any American art museum. It's, it's astounding and incredible. You see nothing like – one thing uh, I didn't know until I had seen it was that a lot of artists in China throughout its 2,000 years of civilized history, if not – that's actually more, right? It's more like 3,000 easily, almost four. They would deposit – uh, some of their best work with the with the emperor with the imperial family. and so they basically it's almost as if like all of Western stuff Michelangelo Da Vinci Raphael whenever they painted a great piece of art they'd also make one for you know the Vatican or something one specific case. so there was a huge archive of like three thousand years of the best Chinese art and you can go look at it in Taipei it's incredible you sit there and go oh this is from one thousand BC when. Europeans thought rocks were good weapons, right? They, you have the most exquisite pieces of art. And uh, as you said, this is a – I'm always looking – the other thing about being from Philadelphia is I'm always looking for a bargain. I spend the weekends hanging out at Costco, monitoring prices, inventory. Because of what Misha says that there's not – we've kind of lost interest in Taipei. You can actually go to Taipei for really cheap, stay in a great hotel for really cheap, eat great food at 1 a.m., and go see some of the finest art in the world. What else would you want to do on a vacation? I, I, that is really one of the great cultural experiences available. Absolutely. Did, did you know I was going to mention that? Is that why we do no. this podcast? No, but you're really going to talk When about I said the there's art. one more thing I want to say, I was going to say just that. <laughs> oh, really? It, it, I, I cannot underscore what John said enough. The National Palace Museum ranks with the Louvre and the British Museum yeah. as one of the greatest handful of museums on this planet. And the story of it is extraordinary. Uh, we should talk about that sometime. Yeah. The story of how these art treasures were taken out of oh, – were, were opened up, were, were taken out during the World War II and moved and then moved back during the Civil War. 
uh, how the, the, uh, the, the Palace Museum itself was uh, the new one. The National Palace Museum was built into a mountainside to protect it from the Chinese. The oh, is that extra- why it's in that weird place? Exactly. Oh, I didn't it was know built that. into a mountainside. We should actually talk about that. It is – but, but this you must is, go. This is going to be – Hoover's going to send us on a field trip. We should go. go. For people who are interested, uh, I did write a a piece on this for National Review a few years ago while I was in Taipei spending, I mean, a day doesn't even, it's like the Met. I mean, you just spend five, six days. days. You can Google that, uh, the National Palace Museum. I wrote it for National Review, and it it, it gives you a bit of the history and talks about it. But John is absolutely right. Taiwan is an extraordinary place to visit. Uh, And uh, we we actually, I think we're going to do a podcast from there someday. (laughs) That's a pact. Um, But John, there's other news. There's other news, and we want to keep to our to our time. Uh, There's other news. Yes, let me ask you about this, Misha. So, in the press, you're seeing more and more reports that a Trump Z summit is uh, imminently to be announced. So, what do you think is going to be achieved by these summits? Do they do any good? What could they achieve in this particular summit at this time? Uh, what do we, you know, what do we hope for from it? Uh, you know, so in a way that sort of balances our interest in trade, but with our, you know, legitimate concerns about security that we were just talking about. Right. So, uh, I think you have to put uh, there's summits that you have with allies and, and summits that you have with with uh, non-allies, with adversaries or, or, or just other nations. Clearly the U.S.-China one is in that, that second category. Now, this one today, it's Thursday, uh, April 4th, and Trump is meeting, the president is meeting with China's vice premier, Liu He, today in Washington, here in Washington. He's uh, Xi Jinping's special envoy over the trade talks. And so the idea of this summit is that they're going to have some type of announcement probably, first of all, if they do the summit, they're probably going to have some type of announcement on an agreement over the trade talks, over tariffs. And, and you've seen some movement over the past couple weeks. The U.S. has not levied tariffs that said it would. The Chinese have not levied tariffs. They said they would. I think specifically on the autos, if I remember. But um, it is it is clear that both sides uh, believe they're getting closer to an agreement and, and want to win. Now, for Trump, uh, this is, I think, you know, as you get close to 2020, uh, you don't want this dragging on. Uh, the president mm-hmm. wants to, to come away with a win. For the Chinese, uh, their economy continues to slow down. Trade with the United States has been dropping dramatically down 15% or more. Uh, um, there have been articles talking about the Chinese talking about preparing for uh, a, a recession or a really significant continued slowdown because of, of the trade war. Both sides want to come to a, a deal. The question is, what's the deal, right? Um, and if Trump gets uh, a deal that's really not a deal, but it's, it's sort of a face-saving, hey, look, you know, a few things here and there, uh, I think there's going to be real questions as to was this worth it for two years uh, and, and the harm it's caused to small and medium American uh, American uh, uh, producers and and the like. So it's really going to be the, the the question of what comes out of this, and then the summit is is going to be the announcement. Now your your question, you know, about well, are these summits do they mean anything? You know, we've gotten into this pretty bad pattern with the Chinese, where we just feel we have to have these summits to show that the relationship is going so well, and we get nothing out of it. Right. Think about the Sunnyland Summit, 2014, between oh, Barack yeah. Obama and Xi Jinping. Xi Jinping promised Barack Obama that he would stop the cyber espionage, the cyber attacks against American companies, and all we've seen is that it's increased, right? 
Uh, the Chinese have promised at summits that they're going to they're going to respect intellectual property rights, and they don't. So we're we've gotten into this this uh, dialogue diplomacy trap where we mm. just feel we've got to keep talking with the Chinese at the highest levels because otherwise we're showing that the relationship isn't good. But the the point is we haven't gotten anything out of it, and, yeah. and this one is really a dangerous. Yeah, there's one this too. one interesting sticking point that you've seen a hint of in the media, but I think it goes back to what we were talking about last show after. Neil Ferguson was on, was how do you guarantee, guarantee, but how do you create incentives to get the Chinese to actually obey their promises, particularly about intellectual property and foreign investment? How do we make sure China, right, China's central government may may even pass laws and regulations, but they have a hard time controlling their local governments. And so that you've seen in the media, there's a sticking point about whether the United States can keep tariffs on, uh, you know, keep, first keep the current tariffs on, but also reserve the power to impose more, even within the trade deal. Uh, and people wonder, why would you do that? And I think that's the sticking point, is how do you force the Chinese, as you say, to live up to the promises that they make at these summits and then they break? Well, John, you're the lawyer. Tell yeah, us no, how we do that. That's exactly how you do it. You, uh, you know, and if you were drafting this up as a, a legal agreement, you know, if you were buying a car or a house, or you, you would have something called progress payments, right, mm-hmm. where you would see progress made by the Chinese and then you would reward them. Uh, you know, in diplomatic talk, I don't know why they have to call them something different, but in diplomatic talk, they call these something confidence-building measures. But this is way more important than those stupid things. And so what you would do is if you were the United States – you would say as you go forward and see the Chinese live up to their commitments over time, you will steadily reduce the tariffs. But you always keep the ability to reimpose them if you mm-hmm. see some kind of backsliding. And you know the Chinese, of course, want the U.S. to promise to lift the tariffs completely right away and not reimpose them again. And Trump may seem unreasonable, but he's actually not being unreasonable mm-hmm. on this point. This is actually a very typical kind of mechanism that's used in the law to try to uh, – sanction failure to comply. And it's hard to see what else you could do because China doesn't care if they lose WTO agreements. These things are very difficult to monitor. It takes decades to get cases up to any international trade buy. They may not listen to them anyway. Well, Misha, I hate to say this, but we're almost out of time because we got to keep your promise to your mom. So we only have time for one more topic. Let's do it. Which is the recent Thai elections. Yeah. So as you... Uh, may have seen Thailand had a very significant election uh, and uh, just at the end of March, March 24th, uh, in that election, uh, basically the military leader, I'm going to try to say his name properly. It's very hard. Even though I love Thai food, I was just in Bangkok. I still have a hard time with language. Prayut Chanacha, I believe. Pretty good. I hope that was close. Please don't get ticked off at me, Mr. Chancha, when the Hoover Pacific Century podcast stops in Thailand for its next field trip. But he won uh, and is going to become the new prime minister of the country. This is the first democratic election after several years of military uh, government, which itself uh, – I would call it a coup. I guess it is a coup. The military mm-hmm. undertook a coup because they wanted to remove – a fairly populist leader, basically the family that owns the main cellular phone network mm-hmm. in Thailand. First the uh, owner and then his sister, who are now have both fled the country on claims of corruption but are still very popular with uh, the sort of larger majority of uh, poor people in Thailand. They were moved by this military government. The military government 
wrote a constitution which gives uh, the military a fair amount of influence, if not direct control, of a number of seats in the Senate, in their version of the Senate. So there's the election was for the House, their version of the House of Representatives. And in those elections, the military government got enough votes in the House when combined with their control of the Senate to make uh, Prayut Chanucha the prime minister. So, Misha, do you think that uh, this is actually a significant event? Is this really a step towards democracy or is this a military government that just wants to clothe itself in some kind of democratic legitimacy, but we don't really believe it to be so? Yeah, I think we're we're you're right. It's closer to the uh, the latter than the former, unfortunately. So the 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 latest coup in uh, in Thailand took place in 2014, uh, and there was a, another coup in 2006. So in 2014, Yung Yingluk Shinawatra, yeah. the Shinawatra uh, family, who yeah. was the, uh, the the premier at the time, was overthrown. She was the sister of Taksin Shinawatra, who was overthrown in uh, 2000. Six. Um, Their problem is they keep winning elections. These Sinawatras, <laughs> right? Well, with this, this right. with this populist, uh, with yeah. this populist movement, and so uh, you know, Thailand's had a very fraught relationship with democracy over yes. over the decades, and it is a U.S. ally. We can't forget that. It's it's very important. Uh, and the str- strategic you look, at, right, you look at the map, and it Absolutely. plays an enormously important role. It's kind of right if you we call it the Indo-Pacific now. And Thailand kind of juts down right into the middle, almost separates the Indo and the Pacific. So if you could, ha- if you have strategic control over that, you know, peninsula, you really can. You really have a big say over the naval traffic that can go back and forth between the two. Absolutely. Oceans. And um, uh, so there, there, the claims are that this was a completely fraudulent, dirty election, yes. corruption, uh, the, the military, uh, you know. Basically, buying obviously buying votes, um, and uh, that that this cannot be cannot be respected. Um, so you've got this this junta uh, that has been ruling the government uh, in, in placed in power by the military. Um, the question uh, is whether uh, there's going to be another sort of pro junta type of government that's established, or or as you mentioned, prayuth. Uh, himself is going to to take over um, directly. Now there there are questions over the limitations as to how much um, uh, there can be on on Prayuth's uh, powers. He's, uh, so we're sort of talking in a little bit in circles here because um, the uh, the electoral commission has said we're not going to know they're not going to release their final. Their final statement. You want to place a uh, bet? Until May. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You want, <laughs> you to want place, a bet on this one? Do you want to place a bet? Um, <laughs> Who's going to win? <laughs> so the question is: Does Prayuth have an yeah. absolute majority? Does he lead a minority government? Yeah. Does he? Um, uh, there are other politicians who are angling to try to create uh, a coalition government, but one that would be pro junta. And mm-hmm. so again, a, a lot of the question is: How committed is the military to? This democratic process, and and the answer is, if you look at what seems to have happened in this election, um, it it's pretty it, it's pretty typical that that a military once taking power is very loath 
even through electoral mechanisms that it's committed to, to actually giving up that power. And so it's trying to structure a new government in a way mm -hmm. that basically preserves uh, preserves its privilege. There is a question, though, as to whether the military is divided, uh, mm -hmm. that there are um, – there's a – you know, there's a, a leadership of the junta. There are there uh, is uh, actually the new leader of of the army uh, leads a different leads a different um, uh, party um, or faction. It's not a party, but a faction. So you you also have splits within the military. I mean, it's extraordinarily complicated. And then throw on top of that uh, that there's a new king. Yeah, I was going to uh, mention that. Is yeah. the one thing that we uh, may forget or understate in the United States is the importance of the royal family there, that they have, uh, I think, much more importance than I think a Western monarchy does in some ways. And there are points in Thai history, recent Thai history, where the uh, monarch has intervened in politics, I think, in ways that even the British monarch wouldn't, um, to register disappointment, the disapproval of things that the military government has done. And actually, uh, I think <clears throat> the royal family there has widespread popular support amongst the people. Uh, I think it's hard not to realize that unless you've actually been there. I mean, if you go to right. a Thai restaurant in the United States, you see you know pictures of the mm -hmm. king or the queen uh, posted on the walls. Isn't that charming? But when you go to Thailand, you know people really are very respectful, I think, of the royal family. Even people who will have very uh, vigorous arguments about the nature of constitutional government and how democracy should be, should be structured. But the royal family there is... Uh, I think that's – I think it's a symbol that brings a lot of uh, Thai people together. And so as you're saying, that's a, another unknown And less variable. majesté, right? They have, they have very strong less majesté laws in, in, mm -hmm. in, in well, Thailand. Well, I think it's a crime. Right? Is it not a crime to criticize the yeah, it is. king in Thailand? Uh, in publications in Thailand. as well. Yeah. Oh, no. I think – remember, there's a case of uh, the I think an, uh, yeah, an American – well, I think there's also a case of an American-based Thai writer who I believe was arrested when he went to Thailand because he had criticized – uh, the royal family and his blog posting because, uh, you know, some of the Thai royal family actually come to the West and have lived here for many years and he liked to follow their latest scandals and so on. He got in a lot of trouble. But, Misha, I, uh, I, the most important thing uh, is I want to make sure that you stay on the good side of your mom. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> so I think we got to uh, end, which to me, unfortunately, all too quickly, but this just means that we're going to – have to defer some of the issues we wanted to talk about to our next podcast, which will be coming to your earphones and iPhones and iPads and Samsungs in very near future. So uh, on behalf of Misha Oslin, this is John Yu, and thanks for joining us for an installment of the Pacific Century. Bye-bye. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.